essentially monopoly structures within our data economy that is possible because of the lack of privacy actually feeds down in massive costs. Data is, you know, a commodity or a currency. It is something really, really valuable. And as we give it up, um, we're eventually giving it away for free. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralized This, presented by Enigma. I am Tor Bear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and today I am very excited to be hosting the incredible Michael Casey. Michael is a hugely influential voice in the blockchain and decentralization space as a writer, an educator, an advisor, and many other roles. He spent over 18 years at the Wall Street Journal and at Dow Jones Newswires, uh, then joined the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, where he is now a senior advisor. Michael's written a number of books as well, including The Age of Cryptocurrency with Paul Vigna, as well as his most recent book with Paul, The Truth Machine, The Blockchain and the Future of Everything. Uh, Michael's also serving as chairman of the advisory board at Coindesk, where somehow he still writes a weekly column, finding time between his numerous public speaking appearances, as well as a new organization he's starting that we're going to discuss a little bit on the show. Michael and I discuss how he first got interested in the blockchain and decentralization space, the potential impact of global regulation, whether our most popular social platforms are decentralized, how journalists can better measure and communicate the value of decentralized technologies and projects, and for at least a couple minutes, uh, crowdsourced singing holograms. I don't know. Uh, Michael's a brilliant person. The breadth and depth of his knowledge and experience, as well as his humility, are really evident in this conversation. It's 50 minutes of just awesome thoughts from Michael. So without any further introduction, here is Michael Casey. Michael Casey, thank you so much for joining us on Decentralize This. It's a pleasure to have you. Happy to be here, Tor. Uh, we always start off every episode the same way. Uh, just ask personally and professionally, just quickly, who is Michael Casey? Okay, uh, very quickly, I'm um, a journalist by trade, by, by, by my background. I spent much of my life as a journalist, Wall Street Journal for a big chunk of that. But I'm also kind of an educator and a communicator. I'm, I'm currently connected with MIT, the Digital Currency Initiative, um, and uh, I do a lot of public speaking and you know, basically very much focused on the sort of shaping change or the changing shapes of our economy in connection to decentralized technologies such as uh, blockchain technology. Uh, and I'm in the process of launching a media company in, in the process. You are a super busy guy and an amazing writer, I should say. You've, you've written a lot of books. Uh, I've tried to read them all. They all are really incredible. Uh, in particular, The Age of Cryptocurrency was one of the books that I read as I was just getting involved with blockchain. I found it to be really fascinating. And your latest is The Truth Machine, uh, which is about the future of everything, I think, in the subtitle. <laughs> yes. I think to call it about the future of everything would probably be a bit much. But the implication being is, you know, the, the, the role that uh, decentralizing technologies like the blockchain can play in you know, virtually everything, I suppose, is the point. I think that's fair to say. And it's definitely the focus of this podcast in particular. Uh, so I'd love to talk a little bit about what you've written about in the past uh, and what you're working on now, as you said, with this new media initiative. 
but maybe let's start with why you got interested in covering decentralized technologies and blockchain in particular uh, from the work that you were previously doing, focusing, I guess, on the legacy financial system, the legacy economy. Yeah, that is a good place to start. Uh, so much of my career or a large part of it was spent in developing countries. I lived in Argentina for six years and a couple of years in Indonesia. And I, for some reason, I kept on just tra- chasing crises around the world. And in Argentina in particular, I got to see a, a sort of fundamental breakdown of the institutional structure of the economy. Um, you know, In particular, I got to realize the, the key role that trust or the lack thereof played in Argentina's failure to capitalize on what is otherwise a very wealthy and well-structured economy to sort of fall into these constant traps of sort of social meltdown and everything else. And so, you know, it was within that context that I would write about economics and I had no idea how to rethink and reimagine what that that structure would look like. I just figured this is how you define failure and and how you know t- tackling institutionalization was the challenge and then bitcoin came along and i just thought it was one it was the weirdest strangest thing in the world why would anybody want digital money that doesn't make any sense you know how do you hold it blah 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 and um then you know wrote a fairly average column about it because i was writing about currencies in those days and so i just saw it as a alternative to the dollar and thought this doesn't make any sense and then i got called in by a bunch of guys some vcs a few other entrepreneurs and various other people just to have a chit chat around it and then sort of put the light bulb off in my head and i just realized that that there was this underlying challenge that it was attacking this core problem of having to trust intermediaries and how to be able to, you know, exchange value, define value, and, and uh, essentially, therefore, create peer-to-peer networks of exchange without these intermediaries in the middle. That was the most interesting thing about Bitcoin, not necessarily the fact or, you know, not whether or not we needed something to replace the dollar. And from that perspective, I was able to look at you know, the Argentine experience and sort of realized that there was something really quite different that could be done to sort of grapple with this institutional breakdown. So it's it's that, that arc of my career that took me to this point. You came to a lot of these realizations. Now you've written a lot about these realizations. I feel like these realizations have gotten a lot of other people to realize what you've realized. Between the two books that you wrote most recently, like about specifically blockchain, like The Truth Machine and, and The Age of Cryptocurrencies, uh, what are you proudest about with those books or, or what do you think the takeaways from that books from those books is? Great. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, I'm glad you asked the question. I mean, I think one of the things that's uh, most um, satisfying as an author is to to feel as if you've had impact. Um, you know, obviously, we like to see book sales, but, um, you know, I, I understand my books are very popular in Ukraine, for example, where they, they, they read the Russian version. And I have probably uh, not, uh, I, I'm not a lot of confidence that they're not, not reading copy uh, bootlegged versions of it in some of these places, but I really don't care about about that. Uh, I mean, I, in this case, what's really cool is that, that yes, people have come to me and said that, that, that my books have helped to sort of change the way they see things and that they have taken on uh, new careers. Some of them, have, many people have actually told me they've quit their jobs. And I say to them, don't sue me if it all goes wrong, but um, that they've, you know, launched startups and, and done various things, not because my book, you know, gives them the manuals on how to do it. That's not what I'm good at. I'm certainly not a, a cryptographer and I couldn't do anything 
anything near the kind of deep uh, cryptographic work that Enigma and others do. Um, I'm just there to tell people why it matters. I'm trying to give people analogies and stories and context in which we can start to think about some of these new models for the economy and some of these new models for exchanging information and data that uh, lets them see why it matters. And, and so that's kind of the way that um, I, I'm at. I feel like my job is to say to people, why does this matter? What, what, why is this a significant change? And what could be different if it was introduced? And so I find it really quite satisfying when people come to me and say, I got it. I, and that, that was it. You helped me see things differently. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to be involved in this. And yeah, I mean, lots and lots and lots of people have, have, have played similar roles, um, you know, some far more influential than, than anything I could hope to be, um, but to have played at least a small role in the development of the understanding and therefore also in the development of the technology, because we've got a long way to go before this stuff is fully scalable and fully viable, but having as many people as possible involved in the build out, involved in the development is the way to get there. So I feel like, you know, having helped people to, get excited about it um, is is something that's pretty satisfying. Let's talk about storytelling for a second because something that's coming up again and again in the media now that you've written about yourself is this idea of data privacy and why is it important to protect data and the idea that on, say, social platforms, you know, it's not really free. You're the product. Your data is what they're collecting and monetizing. How do you think we can get people to care more, you know, as a storyteller and as builders, how can we get people to care more about that issue? Yeah, that's such a good question. It's such an important question because I think, you know, there's this, um, there's this narrative out there to talk of storytelling, uh, in which people say privacy is dead, get over it. Right. Um, and a lot of us, I think almost, um, just because we have no choice, actually accept that in certain settings and i'm not saying that we should but it's just sometimes there's literally nothing you can do about it um and that but the thing is there's this kind of um you know fatalism about it uh and, and i find that that the, the reason why that's problematic is is because they don't fully realize what they're giving up because the, the narrative focuses on things like uh you know identity theft and you know will i will i have my uh, you know, my credit score stolen and, and so forth. And, and then they figure out that they can probably get insurance to get some of those things. And ultimately there's a, there's a lawsuit, but what, what's, what's not properly understood are the underlying economics of how that works against them and how fundamentally difficult it is to actually, um, you know, develop your own, you know, autonomous node within this big global digital economy that we now are integrally connected to. Um, if we don't resolve the privacy problem, they think of it just as like, oh, well, oh, too bad. People know where I live and I know which Uber rides I get and so forth. I wish they didn't, but I, there's nothing I can do about it. At least I like Uber and it gets me to A to one. They don't think about, well, you know, it's that data, that control of that data that allows those centralized entity of which Uber would be one to dictate the terms and that the cost that comes with that intermediation of these essentially monopoly structures within our data economy that is possible because of the lack of privacy actually feeds down in massive costs. It's massive opportunity costs, you know, um, you know, I think we we're going to talk about this a little further on, but I'm just going to keep going with it. I mean, data is, you know, a commodity or a currency. It is something really, really valuable. And as we give it up, um, we're essentially giving it away for free. 
Um, you know, I like to think of it, if we think of, you know, what we're doing is we're participating in this process and providing information about ourselves. Every time we interact with one of these platforms, we're essentially mining data. We're mining our own data and we're giving it away to them. Um, and, and they're creating the aggregating algorithms that allow them to sort of formulate business models on top of it and therefore dictate what every one of us, it's not just individuals, it's businesses, it's small businesses, large businesses, everybody having to actually build their own uh, models for dealing with data and dealing with markets in this digital world through the structures and the, pr the priorities that are set by those centralizing entities. So we need to fix privacy if we're able to actually break that down uh, because if, if we can do that, then we can start to take cha charge of that data. Um, so we need privacy. We also need uh, a, a, a mechanism by which we can trust each other to share the data that we, that we want to share with each other. And that's where, you know, I think the blockchain comes into it. So I've covered a bit there, but it's really the combination of, of blockchain and, and privacy. Now, you must know that, of course, that's exactly how I feel about the issue. And, of course, privacy technologies are an important piece of it. And that's, of course, what we're trying to develop with Enigma. And that's what other people in the space are now trying to develop. And there's a lot of efforts to do this. That's a technological approach to breaking down some of these monopolistic entities that do centralize and do monetize and capture data. Do you think that there's a regulatory role as well? Is that going to be a necessary part of building a more decentralized ecosystem? It's a tough question, right? Because I think it would depend on, on you know, who sets the regulations. And I think it is fair to suggest that different government, the government's different from place to place, and that, that it's that partly because sort of societies uh, form differently. Um, you know, I don't know that you know if if, if Put it this way, I think it goes without saying that governments everywhere should have uh, sort of privacy principles built into them. And I actually applaud the EU for the GDPR. I think it's a mess the way it's been put together. But at least that, that law is founded on a recognition that privacy is something that we, sh that we should be protecting and that governments need to be uh, at least signaling that they want to, to, get, to get right, that, that we don't create proper civil society unless, particularly in a digital economy, unless that right to privacy is, is protected. So um, I, I do think that governments need to be establishing the uh, frameworks for, for sort of laying down principles, maybe constitutionally you know, recognizing these sorts of rights um, in ways that are, are broader than they currently are. Uh, you know, I think that the, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, privacy protections in the Constitution just simply don't go broad enough. They're more about, uh, you know, they're obviously related to state actors and law enforcement, but there's, a, there's an entirely different framework that we can create. But that said, I mean, obviously, governments differ. Um, and and, it, and if, if, if that regulatory framework is built around just entrenching existing institutionalized systems of identity, for example, um, and therefore turning the state into the protector of our privacy, then, you know, we're, we're very vulnerable. Like, I, I wouldn't want the Assad regime to be, uh, you know, my protector of my identity. I'm not even sure I really want the Trump administration to be it for that matter. Um, and, I, and I don't want India. India is, you know, currently respectable government, but they have this big Hadar uh, identity network and it's hacked consistently 
not to mention the fact that you know the BJP, which is currently in in a more benign form than its past, the the ruling government in India, what comes from an ultra nationalist Hindu background that may you know take over again and sort of turn these kinds of government led identity machines into sort of ethnic cleansing weapons, right? So so we have to be very careful. But I also just recognise that governments. Are there. This is the way the world is, and and we've got legal systems that are inherently important in terms of how we go about setting contracts and how we end up interacting with each other. And so, because of that, we have to have that regulatory framework. You know, I think there should be an international solution, an international approach to this. Maybe sort of establishing foundational uh, principles. Um, you know, maybe the UN can pick up on it. I, I, I don't know. That sounds like sort of crazy talk for people in the crypto world that you would want something as dysfunctional as the UN to manage this. But there has to be a framework that is that is that does tie into the to the government perspective, but that doesn't at least leave us vulnerable to abuses by those same state actors. So you're raising a fascinating point, which is that blockchain, Bitcoin decentralized applications are almost by definition borderless. They're supposed to be unstoppable, uncensorable, but we're dealing with actual borders. A lot of these companies and projects that are trying to build and change things, they operate within that larger context of governments or international regulations. Some are subject to the GDPR, some are not. How do you think, how do you think we can move forward in terms of coordinating better across borders? Like, how do we make sure that this is really an inclusive global revolution versus something that only happens in one place and not another? Essentially, you know, I think one thing that could be an interesting model to follow here, you know, the, the early approaches to internet governance, you know, ICANN and uh, the IETF and then these other institutions, which are not perfect and which began, at least in their early days, as uh, falling under the jurisdiction of the United States. Um, but they even even at that stage, and now they're they're, they're more multinational in terms of their jurisdictional structure um, and ownership structure. They were always multi-stakeholder party involved, and so there was an understanding that uh, all these institutions had to play a role. Uh, again, not perfect because we ended up with a you know a, a two cent overly centralized internet, but we do have a functioning more or less functioning internet, and 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 it and it does cross borders, uh, and 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 what was built into that was a sort of a set of governance principles and a model for arbitration amongst uh, you know parties where they would dispute over domain names and so forth that would that would not sort of get bogged down in in, in sort of external courts but would have baked into it a mechanism for arbitration so some sort of framework that um, you know essentially has a hierarchy of of understanding uh, uh, in terms of you know where specific rights by certain entities exist and companies that do want to identify at least certain public key registries that they have could do so in a sort of a public way. So we own these public keys and, you know, the, the, those, the, the, but that, that being the limit to which they are exposing data, that, that framework can then essentially allow for, I think, some sort of mechanism. I mean, this is a really complicated topic. I'm not sure I'm, I'm fully getting getting the, the gist of it uh, to you, but 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 there there I just think to your point before that we live within this framework. It is absolutely unavoidable. We need to think about where the law uh, begins and ends, and where you know a smart contract uh, execution of the contract that is beholden to that law uh, actually starts and ends as well. 
and where where do we you know at what point do you have to move out of the digital realm and into that external legal framework and what can be resolved on chain and what can't you know there's a lot of work going into into governance models and I, I really just do not believe that we could ever arrive at some utopia in which we've just got you know incentives and tokens that are, are used to essentially reward good behavior in that environment, you're always going to get people who figure out how to game that, especially when they've got the most powerful AI bots versus the rest of us. So, you know, there, there has to be an escape route into that legal framework. But, but I certainly believe that before you make that escape, you know, there, there are mechanisms by which we can start to resolve some of these challenges, you know, within it, within the digital realm without having to go to court. I want to ask you something that we started broaching earlier, you know, with, with your work as a storyteller, with trying to get people from the, the legacy world into this space. I imagine that as we get more of the thinkers and builders from our existing institutions to cross borders and come into the decentralization space, we're going to start finding more creative solutions to some of these questions. So maybe talking about now what you're doing with network effects, how do you think we can get more people from this traditional world to start thinking about these decentralized solutions and how they can be a bridge or build a bridge? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think of my main role, you know, throughout my career as a storyteller. I don't think I realized that until I got a little older. I thought that journalism was about sort of getting the facts to people. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't dispute the role of journalists as intermediaries, you know, in, in playing this role of kind of getting some sort of arbitrary version of the truth figured out. But I started to see that biases are inherent in everything. So... Putting that aside, what I did realize is that the skill set that I think is important to, to all journalists and to, to anybody who's a communicator is this storytelling component to it. So how do we tell stories about decentralization? How do we, how do we actually get people to see and understand how things are different? So what I'll do is, I, and I, yes, we, we're launching a company. It's called Network Effects in terms of the holding company. It's likely to be called Streambed Media as a brand. This is very, very early stuff. And so, you know, I, I don't want to, I can't go too deeply into what we're doing. But um, the, I will say that the, the main themes we're focusing on are innovation and society. So we think that technology in the way it's told it through media right now is is not explained appropriately it is focused on the mechanics of what the particular gadget or widget or or app does um, and and sometimes it's all about scaremongering about how those gadgets or widgets or robots are going to take your job and everything else and there's not enough discussion about how they're actually particularly these you know interconnected connected collaborative tools such as blockchain and and just internet connectivity generally and social media are forming whole new structures around which we we create sort of social interaction and that's what interests us most and so just to give you an example you know when we're going we're going to launch a couple of signature videos and one of them is going to be on vocaloids and i don't know if you guys know what vocaloids are but there's a there's a a singer and and she and she is in in, in quotes here uh, has the name of Hatsunu Miku uh, and is actually a hologram. Uh, what's what's really interesting about Hatsune Miku though is not the hologram and how that hologram performs in these concerts, but that her entire repertoire of songs, hundreds of thousands of them, aren't produced by her or by the company that owns the rights to her image, but by fans everywhere. 
it is a completely collaborative, distributed creative process. Um, and, and, and people, if we can start to think about that as a, as a, as a concept of how capitalism is changing, because the value in that brand is not being created by the company. It's being collectively created by everybody. And how should we reward them? Because right now those people aren't getting really rewarded. They are maybe rewarded on a social capital level. They just get such joy out of participating and maybe that's enough. But, but it, it makes us think differently about what, what the capital model here is because the brand is actually completely dependent. These, the company is called Krypton Media and it makes money from the expansion of Hatsune Miku, which is dependent upon that hundreds and thousands of fans around the world pouring all of their creative energy into creating her likeness and creating songs based on the voice bank that they provide to these things. So that's a different world. And I want to be able to tell a story like that to say, think about what we're doing as a society when we create these new forms of collaboration and creativity. And what are the questions that we should be asking about how values should be rewarded and transferred and, and measured and, 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 and so forth. So, you know, I, I, look, there's, there's different ways to approach it, but I think that, you know, I'm interested in open source technologies and how they lower the cost of everything and how we might, you know, be able to much more rapidly improve medical breakthroughs because we're just open sourcing the, the laboratory process, taking it out from these closed pharmaceutical settings where they, obviously you've got 10 scientists working under, you know, restrictive constraints versus hundreds of thousands of, you know, crowdsourced brains being able to pour all of their thinking into what the solutions might be. So there's just a different way to think about what the future might look like when we think about these kind of social structures quite differently. And that's where the decentralization uh, paradigm is so important because you have to decentralize the structure and the, the value exchange model if you're going to allow for all of that creativity and crowdsourced innovation to take root. You're bringing up something really fascinating, which is this idea of like a decentralized organization and this decentralized autonomous organization, DAOs. Like we've had on Richard Crabe from Numeri to talk about the concept of these new kinds of organizations that you can build if only you have access to hundreds of thousands of brains simultaneously. Do you think you, you know this is realistic for the near future? Like how much of this is science fiction and how much of this are we like really approaching in the near future because it's so exciting to think about yeah and part of that question has to be answered from the perspective perspective of how do we get to mass adoption and, and why are there barriers to mass adoption for things like bitcoin for example and it's not just that it's it's volatile um it's that people are kind of wired to think around the existing paradigms and an existing paradigm is a centralized hierarchical pyramid structure you know, there's the guy at the top who the CEO, and he's the one that we sue if anything goes wrong. But he's also the one that controls, you know, a lot all the decision making. And then there are shareholders who, who above him or her, uh, you know, control the value. Uh, and, and and that sort of centralized structure is just the way everything has been done. So folks have a hard time getting their heads around it. But the reality is, and this is where I think the opening starts to appear, is that we're already creating these different structures. Even within that centralized paradigm, we are constantly decentralizing, right? So Uber is a decentralizing phenomenon, even if there is one company in the middle of it. The very fact that you know people own their own cars and set their own hours and sort of you know participate in this 
you know, reputation-based uh, negotiation with each other. And of course, I'm not going to just say Uber, it's Lyft and every, everything else. I mean, that is a decentralization, decentralizing phenomenon. The, the gig economy, the sharing economy, these things are real. Airbnb, they, they are changes in the structure of what we do. Social media is just, it's, I mean, if you think about, again, where what are the most powerful forces for change in our society, they are precisely decentralized structures. So, you know, I, I wrote I read another book I wrote was called The Social Organism, it was all about social media's impact. I wrote this with Ola Luckett, who's a kind of a social media maven. And, you know, we were really interested in the fact that we lost what used to be called the Overton window, which was this idea that centralized media organizations would act as a filter to, uh, to what was acceptable and what wasn't. So you got, you know, you, you never got a hardcore Marxist leftist view or a hardcore right wing white supremacist view making its way onto the evening news because it really wasn't acceptable within that Overton, the window, Philip Overton's idea of a window of acceptable discourse. But now it's all been opened up completely, right? And, you know, of course, Twitter can censor and, and Facebook censors and they do and they try to and they're told to and they, you know, but the reality is the structure is almost impossible for them to fully control. Um, particularly because of uh, the ability, you know, the capacity for anonymity, that um, that we've broken it all down, and 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 now we do literally have in in open discourse people using anti-Semitism, and it plays through our feeds, and we listen to it, and it's there. Um, I'm not, I you know, I, I'm certainly want freedom of expression. I'm all about you know free speech, and I want to protect that, and I think it's a, it's vital that we do. But I, I, I don't like, I, I hate the fact that that, uh, that debate hinges upon the right or otherwise to use such odious language and to have these kinds of environments like, you know, what, what this, this, these events just happened recently in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And, and, and the, the thing is, that change is, is a function of decentralization. It's already happening to us. So we need to think about it, right? So how do we how do we approach that? What what might since we can't put the genie back in the bottle, how are we going to form a structure around something like social media that allows this otherwise decentralized you know, model with all these autonomous agents talking to each other to start to evolve, which is why we call it the social organism, by the way. We're looking at evolution as the other social organism, which is that which is pre that, that that is us as a society that existed before social media, we evolved to to be more civil to each other. We evolved polite niceties. We had all these all of the things that that we take for granted in terms of how we treat each other. That's been there for a reason because we've evolved into that. How might we encourage a structure that actually within this decentralized model allows the social organism to evolve and such that it might regulate itself. That's a scary word for libertarians, but it's it's not about governance. It's a, 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 as a government outside. It's about what is the structure within this that allows the organism to actually survive and thrive in a healthy way. So, I mean, I've gone down a tangent here, but it's, it, I think it's, it's just important if we're going to talk about, you know, how do we get people to understand you know, what to do about decentralization and to embrace it as an idea, they need to understand that we already are decentralizing in certain ways. And unless we figure out a kind of a decentralized trust architecture and we resolve some of these core problems like privacy and protection within that, then we're going to have a kind of a hybrid world that is going to be the worst of both worlds. Decentralized access points, but sort of centralized capital control that, by the way, creates security risks and all sorts of stuff. So 
you know, it's almost like we've got two processes of decentralization underway. We haven't, we've only resolved one of them, we're only addressing one of them, and we haven't resolved the, the architecture, the trust architecture, the governance of that decentralized uh, process. We have billions of devices in the IoT world talking to each other and transferring value with each other. How on earth are we going to do that if we don't figure out how to decentralize the trust model for that, you know, new, brave new IoT world? After looking at these centralized applications, how can we make sure that we're building decentralized applications that are actually, you know, they're superior to centralized applications in the way we are building inclusive platforms? But then how do we make sure we're providing a good user experience and hopefully like an even better, maybe a 10 times better user experience than a centralized application? Like it sounds challenging, but do you think there's a way in which we can do that? Uh, it is challenging uh, because I think the instinct of a developer or an entrepreneur that's funding developers is to think of how they capture value for themselves, right? That's that that's the way that we've built our systems, which is a kind of inherently centralizing instinct. So it has to start as a bottom-up community-driven phenomenon. There has to be at every stage of the of the game um, a kind of a gut check on you know, whether or not the launch, the rollout, the development, everything is driven by community interest uh, in whatever way. And just think of, therefore, I suppose, the profits and the, the gains that come out of it almost as a secondary element, which is kind of antithetical to the way that, you know, traditional capitalism works. But if we, you know, I, I, there, there's a way to do what I think, right? So I, I, I've been giving a, uh, a talk lately, a bit of a theme I've been developing. I have a bunch of stock presentations I give. And one of the ones I've been trying to, to develop a little bit is, you know, where I think the whole ICO boom let the world down. Um, and, and I think that if you sort of drill down into the behavioral aspects of that that got people so annoyed, you know, they kind of reflected centralizing instincts. So the very idea that you should raise the money first, you know, and then build something later on, you know, prioritizing the ICO, prioritizing the, the fundraise aspect of it, that's kind of speaking to the needs of, of the entity. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a way to develop the funds of, you know, they, they just need a fund development. I'm not naive to think that you don't need money to develop things, but but the, but just the very language of the ICOs, the number of people who would say, hey, we had a successful ICO because we raised X amount of money. And if, that, if that's your measure of success, then obviously you're thinking about things the wrong way. That's a centralizing instinct as far as I'm concerned. The very idea that you, know, you can write a white paper and then build later is a similar kind of idea, that the notion that um, there is, uh, it's acceptable for there to be asymmetric information between the founders is, you know, the stuff that the SEC was worried about in terms of why some of these things they thought were de facto securities and therefore, you know, that there was a risk to investors that needed to be uh, considered, you know, was because there's asymmetric information between the power of it. So th there's obviously not, a lot, not enough transparency in these processes. And so the lack of transparency is yet another way in which things, you know, instinctively get centralized. It doesn't mean that you have, you've, you've built a model uh, that, you know, it, 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 let me say it again, you, you, centralization can come through various means, you know, just having uh, a token uh, system in there, having a blockchain, uh, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily exempt you from 
the influence and power that comes from being the founder. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin and sort of, you know, the Satoshi model, of course, there's the, the fact that Bitcoin was mined into existence. And so the founder, you know, essentially takes on the risk as everybody else. Uh, and, and that there was this anonymous participant in the process who bows out. You know, it doesn't mean that we follow that model all the time. But but you get a sense of why it was perceived, you know, the things that the things that were done with the development of Bitcoin that helped to perceive it as a a fully for the people community type project. And even then it gets comes under a lot of criticism for its own centralized structures, certainly with the mining architecture and the idea that some of the um, you know, the, the, the development work is concentrated in the hands of a small pot of particular type of developers. So it, this is difficult, but um, as I said, it, like th there needs to be an understanding that that the the road to decentralization needs to be checked in multiple different ways, not just by you know declaring that you have a token that runs on a public blockchain like Ethereum, right? It, yeah. It's there's a lot more to it that that, that that gives us the spirit of decentralization. So. You're touching on, of course, like a million things here that, that I that I think are all like themselves incredible points. So let me ask you specifically, you were started talking about, you know, measuring based on like amount of funds raised, right? Or, or things like that. One trend that I've seen is that when journalists are trying to cover this space, because it's so difficult to judge the progress of a project or how decentralized it is or any of these other points of transparency. Like a project can be transparent, but it's a small set of people who can really understand and then communicate, uh, you know, whether a project is building actually like groundbreaking or functional tech or whether it is decentralized to the extent that they claim. Journalists have a very challenging job. And when you come to a metric like funds raised, that's standardized. Right. You can say this project raised a million dollars. This project raised a hundred million dollars that, that creates a temptation to say this project is a hundred times better, you know, just because that that's a standardized metric. How how as journalists, because I, I think this is a perspective that you have along with your other hundreds of perspectives. But how as journalists can you make sure that you are storytelling in a responsible way and, and trying to communicate the truth of these things when, when the truth is really, really hard to understand? And the idea is to get away from the, you know, essentially dollar-based metric. If we're talking about something that is supposed to reside outside of the fiat world, then, you know, what is, what is another way to measure uh, the value of a project that doesn't require us to translate back into that, you know, inappropriate fiat benchmark? So you need a benchmark. So Bitcoin is the benchmark in this case. But what they're using, what they're using as the Bitcoin benchmark, is not just its 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 value in dollars or any other. It's it's also a whole range of other metrics. So what are the number of GitHub commits, right? What is the amount of social media engagement? Um, you know, what is there? The price is a part of it. Um, you know, but there's and you can look at this thing quite interestingly and see does it fill all of these qualities? And Bitcoin is seen as the, uh, you know, as the kind of Number you know, in the same way that the dollar in foreign exchange is used as a benchmark, and sometimes you know some currencies are more valued than the dollar, and some are less. The same thing could happen, but you have to have this starting point. And Bitcoin seems like the right place to start, just because you need something, right? But but the but more important point is that there's a there's a set of five different metrics that you can use to look at these things, and they really speak to how much interest there is 
in a project more broadly than something that is just about how much money it's worth. And I think that's really important here because if you don't have developer commitment, for example, you don't have a viable product. You need to have, and so if these are open source projects and there's a wide breadth of people participating and there's a significant amount of code that's being written, then um, you know, you've got something pretty real, you know, at least by that metric, right? But then you also have to look at all these other things as well. So I, I think that we have an opportunity as journalists as well. I think this, this is an educational process and not only journalists for that matter, but everybody in this space to start sort of trying to come up with different metrics. Yeah, I, I think that as long as we don't then stop developing those metrics, as long as we don't reach a point where we said, well, we've determined that GitHub commits and Twitter followers are the two most important metrics for a project and therefore, you know, th this could be – because again, we're, we're describing a lot of metrics – they're all they're all they're not forward looking, right? Like it's it's hard to say. Like I've got a hundred GitHub commits today. How many am I going to have five years from now? To some extent, it's an extension of the team. If the team is trustworthy, if they have development experience, you can expect the number of GitHub commits to increase. And if the community is growing, you can or at least the development community you can expect it to increase exponentially. I don't know. You have to have data. Like so, anything that that whether it's talking to the future or the present has to be based on data that's present, right? I mean, you can't draw data from the future. Um, but but I get the point. I mean, we need to find things that do point to that. And the question is, are these the, the, the right breadth of of, um, of data to do that? Um, you know, and, and I, look, I think I think there's 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 a lot that you can never capture. And I do th I agree with it. Also needs to be uh, dynamic. Like you don't want to just sort of assume that that this one set of, of questions is the one that you should apply. But but just by by stepping outside of the sort of the narrow metric of one thing, you're already uh, creating, you know, they're all weighted. It's like not like one is greater than the other. You know, what do we care about? What is the actual um, measure of success here? Right. And I think that um, just by trying to shift people outside of the realm, if the, if the measure of success is always how much money we've made in dollar terms, then we're underselling the point. You're bringing me to the, the last topic that I want to touch on, which is this idea of, like, we've talked a lot about trust. And I think a lot of trust now with journalists or trust with projects like this has to do with the identity of the people who are leading these efforts, right? Like, there's a difference between Coindesk, uh, like, you know, and reputed journalists, people who used to work at the Wall Street Journal and all these other traditional news organizations, and they've got, like, journalistic ethics. There's a difference between an organization like that and somebody who uses a cartoon character as their avatar on Twitter. And yet, you know, people will sometimes treat those sources of information the same. Character is my, <laughs> my oh, who is it? Avatar. That's my that's my that's that's my daughter's drawing of me though. It's not another character, it's it's actually me. My daughter is an animator and she drew a picture of me and I've used it ever since. <laughs> Can we trust you? I'm not sure. No, no it's that name, I need one of those. I have one of those blue check marks, which I happen to get. People wonder what that is. I think I gave I doxed myself to get it, but uh the fact is when you when you're at the journal, um they gave it to all the journalists. And so that's where I got it. But uh yeah, oh, that's handy. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, then, then of course, you know, that raises a whole other question of whether, you know, the verified checkmark on Twitter is a mark of like yeah. of trust or identity, not the intent of my question and, and to the scope of which goes beyond this podcast. But I wanted to ask you one specific thing, which is how do you think identity is going to look uh, in a decentralized future? These questions of identity and in particular, how it maybe relates to reputation. 
Reputation is everything to a journalist and to a, like a trusted news organization. How do you think we're, we're going to handle questions like that in the future? And, like, and rather than give like a full overview, maybe just say like some key ways in which you think it could be different from the way things are done today. Yeah, I think the latter way to do it is better because identity itself is potentially a problematic word, right? Because we associate yeah. it with a person. But I know what the, the, the problem is, is like, how do you onboard, you know, how do we transact with each other? Right. And, and, and just by saying that we've got digital cash and cash is something that you don't care about the identity of the others, it doesn't solve the question because there's so much in the way of commerce that requires trust in the other, uh, the, you know, the counterparty itself, not just the instrument that's being traded also needs to be trusted. So yeah, how, how does that get resolved? Um, I think that it has something to do with attributes being controlled by the user uh, and parceled out as per needs of whichever person is looking to, you know, provide a service to that to that user. Um, and and yet those attributes residing in an environment in which the uh, the user, you know, can cannot alter. Uh, and at least can can demonstrate that it has not been altered, right? So the holy grail, of course, of this, some people call it the self-sovereign identity or whatever we want to call it. I think it's probably a wrong word, but it's this, is that I am the control of all of my data about me, you know, my credit score, my, my whatever, my age, my, yes, and sort of traditional identity, things like my name and my age and my address and so forth, but a whole lot of other attributes as well, just, you know, my stuff I do that matters to Twitter, you know, to, um, um, if I, if my online surfing habits are something that I want to share, I can share, you know, they're probably not something I should be sharing, but there's like, you know, that, you know, I, I have the opportunity to, uh, to share whatever I want. And, and at the same time, the person I'm sharing with it can verify that it has been, uh, that it's been proven, right? So, so there's a lot of zero knowledge proofy type things in there that I'm sure the you know, Enigma uh, crowd are interested in. Um, it, it, it's, but the, but the point is really is is this idea of being able to treat it as attributes, not not a fire hose of of sort of all of my identity. I, I've always loved David Birch's, um, you know, the way he describes the problem of the the bartender who you know asks to, for you to prove how old you are and you hand over a driver's license that has your age your date of birth your address your uh you know all this other stuff about you um when all that's actually needed is not even to, for that person to know your age they just need to know the answer to a binary question are you or are you not over the age of 21. And so there's a kind of a, a holy grail there that we should aspire to that just says, how can I live in a world where I can just answer those queries and the query about this very narrow specific attribute can be attested to and shown to be an accurate, unalterable attestation that somebody else can trust and we can move on. Um, you know, that that level of control is, and, you know, and, and that I'm the one that controls it, not, you know, Equifax or you know, the, the social security department or whatever, right? It's, um, it's that level of, of self, self-sovereign, self-control that, that is really important. Yeah, I, I empathize very heavily with everything that you've just said. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's this question of control and power. It's this question of, you know, what does it mean 
to to live in a democracy? You know, what does it mean to actually have that power as an individual within a democracy? Is it control of, you know, your identity and how it's used, your data and how it's used? We are in the very early stages of some of these solutions. But I, I have to thank you for the job that you're doing, at least in educating the broader public about why these are such important questions that we're asking. Um, and I have to, you know, thank you for also not being fully prescriptive, right? You're you're definitely exploring these questions alongside the rest of us, right? I, I, I talk with some people sometimes who, who seem to have a very clear view of exactly how they want the future to be. That can be dangerous. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you put that. Thank you very much for your kind words. I, I think that's, I, I'm glad that you recognize that quality because I, I just regard that as critical. I, I don't even say that the blockchain is the solution, right? I, I, I get criticized by the hardcore anti, you know, the no corner crowd and various people who think that I'm just a shill for things. I don't, I don't, I don't actually own very much, if anything, really, in terms of, of anything in the crypto space. I'm just really interested in the technology. But I'll also say, look, if something better comes along, I like to think that I think I can prescribe one thing that we need to resolve the trust problem. We need to figure out some form of distributed trust. And I'm just going to, I'll just leave it at that. For now, you know, something like a blockchain looks like the solution. But if you just see just poo-pooing blockchains as unworkable and don't come up with anything else, then, you know, you're not much use to me because there's no doubt we have a huge trust problem in the world. And, uh, you know, in, in the sort of distributed uh, online community that we now operate in, we have a problem and we need to address it. As far as I can see, this at least gives us some framework for thinking about that. And that's the level to which I'll prescribe, but I'm not going to go much further than that. Well, I really appreciate that level of humility uh, in a very complex space where there seems to be incentive to express more confidence than you have surely earned. So, again, I do appreciate that. I'm sure our audience appreciates that. Um, if they want to follow more of your work, you know, if they want to see what your daughter's drawing of you looks like, for example, where should they go to follow your tweets or your writing or your books? Uh, yeah, so I tweet on Mike JK, Mike J. Casey. Um, obviously, uh, I do write a regular column for Coindesk. And so if you search my name under Coindesk, Michael J. Casey, you can find my weekly column there. Um, yeah, the books are all on Amazon, The Truth Machine, The Age of Cryptocurrency, The Social Organism, uh, The Unfair Trade, and one that's going to confuse your listeners called Che's Afterlife, about the image of Che Guevara. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> incredible. Well, I'll sure I'll be sure to add all of those links to the podcast description. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I, I look forward to more of your work and maybe we'll do a part two. We'll have to see. All right. Thanks to all the best. <laughs>